that puzzlement you felt is exactly what philosophers spend their entire life trying to understand. But it is a gift. That puzzlement is a gift that only you can experience. And possibly octopuses could, or octopi. You could say, well, why can't we ask an octopus whether it does have this kind of, whether it's puzzled about the fact that it can sense its world? And, you know, is it an octopus or is it is it is it something else? One key thing here is that if it is right that um, self-awareness and any kind of selfhood rests upon a model of me, a self-model, you have to ask yourself, well, where did that come from? Um, and many people might answer, well, you had to develop that self-model during your very early life in order to distinguish between your mother and yourself. If I'm using you to understand me, and ultimately me to understand you, and this is known as theory of mind, then that will only work if we are sufficiently similar. So even if the octopus is self-aware, and perhaps um, there are churches or schools or universities or philosophers uh, you know, deep in the sea, where octopuses gather and discuss zombie octopuses, we will never know. We will never know because we can only talk to each other. In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Support for this show comes from Science Robotics Journal. I really find Science Robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics. Great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles, where also you can contribute with your question and thoughts about the research. Thanks Science Robotics for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. start my question for you, um, especially since you are specialized in brain and understand the brain. When we look to evolution, and I think the question is why certain creatures, for example, have brain and body, and there's other creatures exhibit intelligence exact for, through the body itself. Do you think there's a reason that um, the relationship between the brain and the body and other creatures don't have the relationship, the, this relationship, they only have the body, for example? There isn't a reason behind that. I think the reason would probably lie um, in evolution, obviously. Um, I would probably address that kind of question by appealing to things like the good regulator theorem. So I'm going back to early ideas at the inception of uh, cybernetics, where it was thought to be provably true that in order for any creature or artifact or organism to successfully regulate its eco-niche or environment. It had to be a good model of that environment. So if you translate that idea into an evolutionary context, what we're saying is that adaptive fitness literally is the ability of a phenotype 
to fit and explain its environment or its eco niche. So the question then is, why um, do some uh, creatures and organisms need brains, for example, and why do other creatures not? Because you could argue that a virus is, uh, you know, um, from the point of view of the virus, has an excellent adaptive fitness and persists and endures uh, through phylogeny um, in very much the same way that, that, that we have. And I guess the, the answer that would distinguish a virus from a vegan or a person um, in terms of the kinds of structures that a person has that a virus doesn't has, have um, would rest upon the fact that we people have to regulate a much more complicated environment, in fact a, an environment or an eco-niche which has a cultural aspect in the sense that it's large our environments are largely populated by creatures like us that are very complicated and in turn try to model uh, model me so um, the very emergence of um, culture tools um, anything in that can be constructed within our eco niche by other complicated agents makes that eco niche very complicated and thereby requires increasingly sophisticated models that under the good regulator theorem would endow a phenotype with adaptive fitness. So that's why um, I personally uh, and many other people um, would uh, think that the brain has the kind of structure that reflects and literally embodies in a physical sense the causal architecture of the world it has to explain and navigate. You know, so we have all the interesting architectural features like a hierarchical organization, a, a separation of temporal scales, key things like um, a sparsity of connection. Um, so one interesting question is, what's the difference between the brain and the liver? You know, they both do very good jobs. Um, but what is special about the brain and what is special about the brain is this um, the presence of these very long slender connections, you know, like the wires on a circuit board or the, um, the communication channels in some information processing device, um, which speaks to an interesting um, proposition. If it is the case that the structure of the brain recapitulates or installs causal structure in the world, that kind of suggests that the brain is trying to explain a world in which there is action at a distance, in the sense that wires connect or neuronal connections, axons in the brain reach out and connect very distal neural populations. And of course, that's the kind of world which we live in. You know. Whereas if I was a virus or a little worm, I really wouldn't have to worry about that. I'd just need to worry about what was next to me. Uh, and I could get away with a brain that was much more like a liver that doesn't have these long range connections. So that's basically how I would see, um, or how one might understand um, the emergence of functional architectures that were fit for purpose in the sense of the good regulator theorem and in the sense of adaptive fitness from the point of view of evolutionary biology. Maybe we can just ask you about the architecture of the brain or why it has this shape. 
if there isn't a reason behind that. For example, we had a discussion in the episode, uh, in another episode about that elastic instability. Maybe that's uh, how the brain is uh, developed based on this um, architecture of the elastic instability. Maybe for you that. Why do you think the architecture of the brain in that shape? And when we look to different species, do you think the size of the brain, how this thing is of the size is affecting the awareness of the environment to take this information and process this uh, to be a living in the environment? Yeah, no, I, I think that's you know, a, a, a very important notion. Um, so just simple things. I mean, if it's right that my brain is a model of my experienced and lived world, then there will be architectural features that are copied from the world. You know, so for example, um, the symmetry of my brain tells me immediately that I have a symmetrical body, you know, in the sense that the most important bits of the outside world beyond the skull um, are going to be the body that you used to carry your brain around. So I don't even need to look at my body. I can just look at my brain. I can tell you immediately that I have a particular symmetry. And if you gave me the brain of an octopus and it had uh, a radial symmetry of eight degrees, I can tell you immediately it would have eight legs and would perambulate and articulate and interact in an embodied way with its world with that kind of body. Um, we could go further and if you told me that certain parts of the brain um, activated or got excited by or processed information um, about where things were in contrast to other functionally specialized parts of the brain that were more um, interested in or activated or engaged by what things are. That would tell me something quite fundamental about the world that you came from or your brain came from. It, it tells me immediately that there's a, uh, a causal or statistical separation between whatness and awareness. And indeed, we see that in, in, in the human brain. So uh, there's a uh, uh, following from the similar work of people like Leslie Ungerleider, this notion of dorsal and ventral pathways in the visual system. So that the dorsal, you know, higher in uh, towards the back of your head, that part of the brain processes uh, information about where you are and the kinematics and the movement um, of things in a Euclidean space, whereas the more ventral, deeper down below your ears parts of the brain are much more concerned with processing what things are, you know, categorizing objects, recognizing things as things, as natural kinds. Because of that physical separation, that anatomical separation, that um, dissociation, um, if I now read that as a statistical dissociation, what that is saying is that the world that this brain came from is composed of objects or things that are in different positions. But knowing where something is doesn't tell you what it is. And telling and knowing what something is doesn't tell you where something is, which, of course, is largely true. I mean, obviously, we have to put the what and the where information back together to generate um, a prediction of a red bus or um, a uh, a pair of glasses to the right of my you know, to the right of my arm, but in terms of representing in um, a computationally efficient way, um, then I can now use this separation of whatness and awareness to finesse the 
anatomic the anatomical architectures a separation of what and where in summary in the world then translates into an anatomical distinction between um, the what and the where pathways in the brain and you can even take this to other fundamental cystical um, features of our world for example um, as opposed to where in space you can think about where in time in the sense that things exist and persist over time so again knowing what something is doesn't necessarily tell you when something is so again you'd be looking for a computational architecture um, that have this ability to factorize representations of when the ordinal structure the sequence of things without committing to what was actually being sequenced and indeed when one looks at um, structures like the hippocampus in the, in the human brain or mammalian brains um, and how it talks to and engages with cortical representations say in the ventral stream one sees this sort of computational architecture where you can effectively index and i'm talking here um, about ideas from uh, from people like um, yuri Buzaki, sort of using this sort of um, internal representation of sequence ordinality and time um, to index particular whatness so some really basic um, um, principles of message passing get translated into brain architectures in a way that is sympathetic to the causal architectures of the world that we're trying to fit and to, uh, and to, uh, and to explain uh, brain size you, you you were mentioning brain size um, and, you know I mean, there are, there's lots of comparative anatomy that we could talk about, but I think um, I think probably the most interesting distinction here is um, uh, between um, creatures that do and do not have brains. You know, um, and one might ask, well, what do we have a brain for? And I've said it's to um, effectively explain a world in order to regulate it in the sense of the good regulator theorem. So how would you regulate a world? How would you actively engage with a world? Of course, you have to move. So the answer, brains are quite simply for moving, for acting upon the world. Uh, and if you think about it, there are only two ways in which you can act upon a world. You can either move your muscle or you can secrete something. And that's it. There are no other ways in which you can change physically your world. So that means that if you have to move or you have to secrete something, you have to have a brain. If you don't have to move, say you're a little sea anemone that never has to move ever again, then you can eat your brain. And this is a wonderful example that Daniel Walpert likes to, uh, likes to uh, use just to illustrate the very simple point that brains are just there for an active engagement with the world that largely is just a reflection of things that move which is quite an interesting observation if you're in uh, artificial intelligence or uh, machine learning you're you're not going to get anything close to a biomimetic capability um, or architecture unless your computers are, you know, can actually do something they can actually move around plug themselves in or select this channel of information or another channel of information so one would guess that um, the bigger the thing you have to move around 
and the statistical sophistication or complexity of those movements by which I'm intimating um, movements that uh, are part of plans with a deep temporal horizon where I plan to do something deep into the structure. The deeper the planning and the more sophisticated and forward or future pointing the movements, then one would imagine the bigger the brains. And that certainly seems to be the case um, in terms of um, comparative anatomy that, you know, most higher forms of life or, or, uh, or creatures um, come along with bigger brains and the ability to free themselves from the present in the sense of being able to plan and model the consequences of their plans and their policies and, and their actions. So that's where I would sort of um, place questions about the structure and size of brains and the, and the necessity for brains. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Maybe because you mentioned octopus at the beginning, and we actually had an episode about the octopus uh, and how it's interesting their consciousness. They actually they they say that they don't understand how it works, and it's believed there may be brain in each of the tentacle of the eight tentacles. If we look to the 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 structure of the brain with the body, for example, the human, and if we look for octopus, for example, the the brain and the tentacle. Do you see any something me interesting? The the representation of the number of the brain with the body, or does doesn't seem interesting to you to see how this structure work together, or representation of the brain with the body. So I mean, you mentioned um, you mentioned the octopus and whether one yeah. can. Um, make any inferences about the kind of consciousness that an, an octopus would have. Um, and certainly that that kind of um, self-awareness um, would be intimately tied to the body. You know, so if it's the case that our brains and our uh, information processing in brains is all about um, moving the body, um, and predicting how the body will behave and what parts of the world I can control and what parts of the world I can't control, where the bits I can control are usually my body, um, the, then there's going to be a deep connection between um, those kinds of creatures that um, have a sufficient or apt brain to be able to model their own body and, in particular, the consequences of moving their body. And that's quite important because um, if they have a, a brain that is able to generate the consequences of movement, that brings to the table um, two important things. First of all, you've got big brains that can model the consequences of things. And, a, and the key point here is that the consequence is in the future. So the consequence hasn't yet happened when you're doing the modeling of the consequences of a particular act, um, which means immediately you've got this temporal depth in your computational device in your brain, um, which will require computational resources. It will require extra neurons or um, extra uh, um, computational devices and extra wires simply you know, to support a representation of the consequences of action. The second thing it brings to the, brings to the table is that it's your action. So 
even if the creature or the computer or the artifact or the octopus is not aware of itself, it has a minimal selfhood in the sense that it's simulating the consequences of its action, its agency. So it now becomes an agent. And then the bigger question from the point of view of consciousness research, at what point would an octopus possibly uh, or any um, creature become aware that it is an agent? When would it develop part of its model, parts of its explanation for the world, for its sensed world, um, that would include the hypothesis, ah, I am the agent that is um, um, prosecuting these plans. Um, and you have to ask yourself, you know, what would that be like? Um, and I would imagine, uh, 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 I'm just here going on sort of what I've read about and what I've seen on television about octopuses, that, that you know, they, they certainly you know, may well have a, a representation or a model of themselves as agent, you know, as the cause of their own actions, as opposed to a, um, something that can plan, um, but is not aware of itself planning you know, perhaps um, you're a very clever bee or an insect that can plan to do things, but is not actually aware of doing those things. It's still planning. It's still very sophisticated. It's more sophisticated um, than a thermostat, which does no planning effectively. It just looks in, into the immediate um, uh, trajectory or path of um, control variables. Um, but other creatures with you know, the ability to free themselves from the present do have this ability, so um, I would uh, I would um, I would say that there was a deep connection between the brain and the body in the sense that the brain is trying to predict um, how the embodied world or the embodied brain, um, um, where the body constitutes a very important part of the body, is going to behave in the future, and then is in a, in a position to, in some species, um, become. Um, a model of that self, uh, that minimal selfhood. And I think at that point, you're starting to have, um, you know, getting close to the notion of consciousness in the sense of um, being aware that it is you that is pursuing these plans. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Maybe when you mention free from self from the prison, what do you mean about that? It, it simply means, uh, I mean, I'm... Um, really paying a nod to uh, one of my mentors, um, Jerry Edelman, um, who wrote a book called The Remembered Present. Um, many people, I think, have, have, have sort of um, um, put forward this notion that the way that we make sense of our senses, our sensorium, our world, is um, by explaining, modeling, predicting, generating, dealing with, not instances of sensory data, but trajectories and paths of sensory data. And as soon as you have a model of a trajectory or a path as it, as it goes from the past into the future, then your sense-making, your perception, your the way that you understand and represent that world, that world of dynamics and paths and trajectories, of sequences, um, is now no longer tied to the moment. So a very simple example 
would be uh, where in your head and at what precise instant did this sentence get represented? So it wasn't at the beginning of the sentence because you hadn't heard all the, all the words. It can't be just at the end of the sentence because I started speaking about, you know, several seconds ago. And you know that and you understand that. So there is no instant, there's no present moment in your representational machinery that could possibly encompass the semantics and the meaning of this narrative, this particular kind of trajectory. So in that sense, you are freed from the present, from the immediate point in this point in time, this instant in time, simply because you make sense of your world of your world in terms of trajectories that have an extended temporal dimension. Um, people sometimes talk about the cognitive moment, which you know, maybe about 300 milliseconds or a third of a second, so that we experience our world, we represent, predict, um, make sense of the world um, in little chunks or sequences of time that cannot be less than a few, than a few hundred milliseconds. Uh, and in that sense, um, because you cannot compress down to the, the instant, the present moment, we are effectively freed, uh, freed, freed from the present. Does that make sense? That's very interesting. <laughs> very interesting. Um, maybe a quick question here, because you mentioned also the word self-hood, and, and I'm trying to make sense maybe from the meaning of self-hood and being, because I don't know, maybe quickly, uh, I, I, I had this always this, um, when I looked to mirror when I was very kid and I was recognizing this something who I am and I just um I don't know how to express that but I feel there's something inside me and I was looking outside of myself as something weird how I'm here and how I'm talking it's weird feeling so I I don't know how to explain it it was unexplicable and it's weird it's scary that's that I'm living being I don't know if that's something you can explain uh, or you understand what I'm trying to say but there's a differentiation between the selfhood and being in in for example you mentioned octopus they are aware of the environment they have this the spider when they have the legs and the web they, they are aware of this environment and they can catch the prey and know if there's damage in the web so they have this capabilities of awareness uh i don't know if you get my question yeah i mean i think you're you're wrestling with with what philosophers have been wrestling with for for for, for millennia um I think that's absolutely right. There's a fundamental distinction between um, having a um, a capacity to make sense of the world and response, respond to that world and just to be in that world in a functional way. And then knowing that you are a creature or an artifact that is being in that world. So for me um, and people like me, the explanation always has to be cast in terms of the internal or the generative models you, that you bring to the table to make sense of your world. And as soon as you say a word like me, that tells me immediately that you have a generative model that actually includes a hypothesis or a construct or a, a representation of me. Now, you don't need that you know, to move to feel possibly, uh, to sense, to talk. You don't have to have, oh, it's me talking. You can just talk. So, the, but the, there certainly are um, 
well, I am assuming that there certainly are creatures like, like you and me that have this additional, um, this additional layer, hierarchical depth to their generative models, to their internal world models that include this ability to represent and understand and sense make under the context, under the belief that it is me doing this sense making. Um, and that leads to all sorts of interesting consequences, um, because if you've got this very sophisticated um, model that has the hypothesis, oh, it's me that is thinking, it is me that is planning, it is me that is seeing, it is me that is feeling, there has to be an alternate hypothesis that is not me. And then you get into the world of zombies, which philosophers love. Uh, so you could actually argue the very thought experiments that underwrite a lot of philosophical discussion and puzzlement of the kind that you have just experienced or were describing is actually only the kind of puzzlement that things very sophisticated things like you and me can actually enjoy because to have the hypothesis i can be a zombie so i'm not me or there's no me there's no mehood or selfhood um, but and yet i behave um, in exactly the same way tells you that you you first of all had these counterfactual hypotheses in your head so much of this puzzlement i think is um it, it's not a problem it's actually a reflection of the fact that you can entertain these fantastical hypotheses that you can be outside your head and look at you without you being in your head so that's just this ability i think that comes with this um, ability to free oneself from the present but also free oneself free oneself from um, the uh, you know the location that is you know that, that is our head to be able to stand back and model my my own brain or model my own sense making or sentience um, you know that's another uh, if you like ability of these generative models that can entertain these abstractions that go beyond the uh, the spatial temporal present uh, so you know that puzzlement you felt is exactly what philosophers spend their entire life trying to understand but it is a gift that puzzlement is a gift that only you can experience and possibly octopuses could or octopi i'm not quite sure what the plural is and possibly they could as well i i don't know uh, well <clears throat> one you could say, well, why can't we ask an octopus whether it does have this kind of, whether it's puzzled about the fact that it can sense its world, and you know, is it an octopus or is it is it is it something else? One key thing here is that if it is right that um, self-awareness and any kind of selfhood rests upon a model of me, a self-model you have to ask yourself well, where did that come from um, and many people might answer well you had to develop that self-model during your very early life in order to distinguish between your mother and yourself so when you're born you don't need a notion of me and you or me and mother um, you know for, for, from your point of view it's just a world which some people refer to as an oceanic state 
um, which just supplies sensations and bits of the world you can change and bits of the world you can't change. And you have to learn that. Um, and at some point, you may have to um, realise that mother is not part of you. And if you have to realise that mother is not part of you, you now have a model, a hypothesis in your world model or your generative model, that there are other creatures or there are creatures. And then you might think, well, perhaps I am a creature. And then you have a sense of self. So your sense of self was actually just testing the hypothesis. Or well, perhaps I'm some, uh, I am an artifact or uh, a thing that is like my mother that I've seen move around and she behaves like this and she behaves like that. Sometimes I can get her attention, sometimes I can't. Perhaps I'm that kind of thing. If that's true, that means your ability to um, exchange with others and to understand others, um, um, understand yourself, is predicated upon and very dependent upon your ability to model others, which means that um, if I'm using you to understand me, and ultimately me to understand you, and this is known as theory of mind, then that will only work if we are sufficiently similar. And I tell that long story because, of course, me and an octopus may not be sufficiently similar for me to ever really understand an octopus, quite simply because I can't use any of my beliefs about, I can't use my self-model to infer what the octopus meant or what the octopus is thinking. Whereas I, I can do that with you. If I look at you and I can see you, I can hear you, I can say to myself, well, what propositional stance, what intentions, um, what things am I holding in my head that would have to be there in order to produce the same movements and facial expressions that you're offering me? And then I can use that to infer what you're thinking. But I can only do that because you and me are so similar, you know, and we share the same narrative, we share the same language, we have the same kinds of bodies, we're both, you know, from the, you know we're both conspecifics. I can't do that with an octopus. So even if the octopus is self-aware, and perhaps um, there are churches or schools or universities or philosophers, uh, you know, deep in the sea, where octopuses gather and discuss zombie octopuses, we will never know. We will never know because we can only talk to each other. Thanks so much for this explanation. I appreciate it. Maybe going back to um, the, um, the share about dynamic causal modeling, dynamic causal modeling. And I, I find it very interesting how certain area, you mentioned, as I understood that, how certain part in the brain affect each other is kind of the dynamics, how it affects each other. And, and that's related to maybe, I find that maybe uncertainty, for example, in a robotics design, whatever, how we can design system adapt to uncertainty or anticipate the, by the right behavior, predict the right behavior in uncertain situation. When it comes to brain the uncertainty and how the causal, dynamic causal modeling here can affect each other so that they can make the right decision. I don't know if you get what I mean, but is there any correlation between the environment and this theory, if you can explain it, maybe what is dynamic causal modeling, and if we we have uncertainty, how the brain behave. Right, that, that that's a challenging um, and very pragmatic question. So, 
dynamic causal modeling um, is, as you um, intimate, um, a way of um, assimilating data and importantly with uncertainty quantification um, under the hood. So, you know, strictly speaking, uh, dynamic causal modeling is, is just a way of um, estimating system identification, model identification that does data assimilation and uncertainty quantification. Um, it, um, it's effectively you're know, part of systems biology or complex systems modeling characterized by using variational procedures to um, solve um, particular um, marginalization problems which would otherwise be intractable you'd have to use particle filters or um, you know uh, some kind of MCMC like procedure to, uh, to, to, to solve the same problem. So dynamic causal modeling is just a procedure. It's a procedure used to assimilate data um, usually in the context of um, unknown latent states generating observable time series where you also have unknown parameters of the causal architecture. So usually you'd write down a set of differential equations um, that would generate uh, dynamics in some latent or unobservable states and then you'd equip what you are effectively building which is a generative model of time series um, with a likelihood model that would map from these latent states to observable time series. So now you've got a forward model um, of some time series and then what dynamic causal modeling does it effectively inverts the, the, the forward model that maps from causes to consequences, hidden states, hidden causes to observable um, measurable time series data, it inverts that mapping to get from the data back to the causes and that's you know, solving the inference problem. So that's called model inversion, it's just inverting the mapping from cause to consequence um, to get the best estimate, the probabilistic estimate of the cause given the consequence. Um, and the, the, that applies both to the, um, the latent states and the parameters of the system. Um, I phrase it like that because um, there is actually a, a deep connection between dynamic causal modeling and um, what we've been talking about in terms of uh, brain architectures, because in one sense, that model inversion, that inverting the forward model to recover the unseeable, the hidden causes of all our sensory data is exactly the problem that the brain faces. So the brain has solved the dynamic causal modeling problem. And it may well use very, very similar uh, mathematical procedures, such as these variational techniques to, um, to assimilate not experimental or engineering or data from some plant, but the sensory signals, the sensory time series from our eyes and our ears, and indeed our, um, our, uh, our bodies in, in the form of interceptive um, uh, data. Um, so the, you know, there's, there's a really interesting parallel between the principles of dynamic causal modeling and the principles that you would see um, in uh, installed in the brain that may be doing its own kind of dynamic causal modeling. But let me just go back to the technical aspects of dynamic causal modeling. Um, so the, what that says is that you're making sense of um, experimental, empirical or engineering or plant data um, um, 
under a forward model that's called a dynamic causal model. It's a causal model because it's, it maps from causes to consequences, but crucially, um, it's dynamic. So it's always articulated in terms of differential or difference equations or master equations. So this is not about structural causal modeling, like structural equation modeling, uh, where you're trying to make sense of data that is static. We're now talking explicitly about time series modeling, assimilating data and accumulating um, evidence over time. Um, and all you do is basically write down a generative model or a forward model as a set of differential equations and then use variational bays effectively to, um, to invert that model to build posteriors over the unknown states and the unknown parameters where the only distinction is that the, um, the states change as a function of time. They have these trajectories in them, the dynamics in them, whereas the parameters don't change over time. They're just invariant. They're features that um, are conserved over time. Um, if you look at it like that, then, then the, you know, the big issue or the big problem is, well, okay, what set of differential equations? What's their functional form? Um, and how would I know that I got those equations right in their functional form or the way that I've composed them? And that leads us then to um, really what, probably what is the most important thing that dynamic causal modeling has to offer. And that's the ability to score the quality of your model form, the architecture, the architectures that we were talking about before in terms of big brains versus little brains. What's a good model? And how do I tell, given some data, that this set of differential equations, this particular model, is better than another model? Um, and the answer to that um, is the evidence for your model. So quite simply, it's the, um, the probability of these time series data, given that model, the likelihood of those data being generated by that model. So that's the holy grail in, I would submit, not just Bayesian statistics and dynamic causal modeling, but I would also suggest that that is that objective to maximize sometimes um, known as the marginal likelihood, having marginalized or averaged away all the parameters and all the hidden states that cause your data and just boil things down to a statement about the probability of the data given a model. That, that marginal likelihood, that model evidence is just the thing that we actually are trying to optimize in the way that we lead our lives. We're self-evidencing. We're just going around trying to maximize the evidence for um, our own generative models in the world. Practically, when you're doing dynamic causal modeling um, in data analysis, uh, you're just trying to do exactly the, the same thing. You're trying to find those models that have the greatest evidence, um, but that evidence is extremely difficult to evaluate um, because to do so, you'd have to solve this marginalization problem to get to the marginal likelihood, which means integrating of extremely high dimensional spaces, which can't be done. Um, so how do you solve that problem? Um, depending upon your reading of the history of uh, variational techniques, um, many people would say, well, you do what Richard Feynman did. You convert an impossible integration or marginalization problem into a tractable optimization problem. So he was um, 
um, worried about um, integrating over the probability density over the you know the infinite number of paths a small particle could take from you know being prepared in initial state to a uh, to a final state, um, and clearly he, you know you cannot do that. But what he he did was to create something that was computable and um, analytically tractable, that was a bound approximation to the log of the marginal likelihood. And that's known as a variational free energy. If you're in machine learning, this would be known as an evidence lower bound or, or an elbow, E-L-B-O. So these are the things that you'd find in variational autoencoders, um, um, the objective function that underwrites uh, variational autoencoders in deep learning. That is exactly the same objective function in dynamic causal modeling. Um, and it is um, rests upon the variational approach in which you know the functional forms of your um, your posteriors or your, your beliefs about the unknowns. Uh, and as soon as you impose a, a fixed functional form on these densities, you create this uh, approximation to the marginal likelihood or the log marginal likelihood or the log evidence, which is the variational free energy. And that now allows you to do what we wanted to do, which was answer the question, which is the best model, this one or that one? Well, you simply take the same data, you invert the model, you basically optimize your posterior beliefs about all the unknowns um, using variational uh, Bayesian model inversion. And then you take the ensuing free energy or evidence lower bound and compare it with the same evidence lower bound or approximation to model evidence when you repeat the procedure with your other model. And then the winning model is a model that has the highest evidence or um, um, the highest elbow. Um, and there's even a semantics associated with this because we're talking about log probabilities. Um, we're talking either about bits of information or NATs if we're working with natural logarithms. Um, so if one model is 20 times more likely than another model, that means its log evidence will be three NATs larger. And that means that a difference in your elbow of three or more tells you immediately, well, this model is much better than that model. And then you can take that notion and you can score hundreds of models, millions of models, uh, and we do that quite routinely um, when creating models of neural networks. So, you know, my job is to understand functional brain architecture. So we take um, neuronal time series measured, say, with um, um, electroencephalography, EEG or MEG or functional magnetic resonance imaging. So these are the observable data that, you know, signals generated that we can measure. And then we try and explain them in terms of neuronal states. Uh, but the big question, of course, is what is the architecture? You know, do we have a hierarchical um, relationship between different parts of the brain? Uh, do we have a sparse connectivity? Do different parts of the brain have different time constants? Um, what's the importance of local connectivity versus this long-range connectivity? All sorts of really important structural architectural questions, each of which is installed in a different kind of dynamic causal model, forward model. And then you run these models, evaluate their free energy, their variational free energy or their elbow, and then you compare them and you choose the best one 
and then you start again. How can I make it better? So then you explore a different one. So you know, I'm sorry that's such a long answer, but it's, it, it, it's something which which um, I think is really important, um, especially when it comes to modeling um, uh, complex systems in medicine or epidemiology, where getting the model right really does matter. And perhaps it, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll matter in climate change modeling which tells you immediately you've got to have a way of scoring the goodness or the evidence for your models, which normally um, obliges you to recourse to variational techniques and the kind of techniques that um, under, you know, underwrote um, Feynman's pathological formulation of, uh, of uh, quantum electrodynamics. And, and that's really the heart of, of, of DCM. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for highlighting that. Maybe I won't ask you related that. What maybe still maybe for you missing when it comes to explaining the model or maybe mysterious to understand in, in dynamic causal modeling, maybe still mysterious or maybe it's something missing, maybe in the techniques to explain certain uh, behavior. Do you have any encountered um, situation like this? I think, I, I think yes, all the time. Um, but you know the question about what is missing um, is really directed back at the generative model. Yeah, in the in the practical sense that much of the technology for the data analysis or for simulating the brain doing its own data analysis and its own active inference, that's already out there. You know, the, you know, um, as soon as you commit to a particular kind of generative model, you know almost immediately the kind of um, algorithm or scheme you're going to be using to invert or sense make or um, evaluate some data or assimilate um, some data. So for example, if it's a discrete state space model, you'll be using I believe propagation or variational message passing. If you're uh, working with a continuous state space model, you're going to be using some form of generalized um, Kalman Busey filtering um, um, you know, or extended you know, in a nonlinear and hierarchical way. So the maths, uh, I should just add that um, for completeness, um, the generalizations of these Bayesian filters um, that are apt for inverting DCMs um, of continuous states in continuous time uh, is also known as predictive coding in, in the neurosciences at least, uh, which speaks to really interesting connections between compressibility and the relationship between the evidence and complexity and compression and universal computation, all sorts of really interesting mathematical issues here. Um, but to, to, to come back to your question, you know, uh, uh, you know, where are the big problems? Um, because you know how you've got the technology to solve, to evaluate the evidence for a generative model or a forward model or a dynamic causal model at hand, the big question now is how do you specify or choose your generative model? So if you ask me what's missing from your explanation of this system or this, this set of data, um, then uh, it would really be, uh, I would read that question as what's wrong with your generative model and what kind of generative model, what kind of hypothesis have you not yet evaluated? So what you're asking me is how... Um, how do you become a good scientist? You know, how do you develop those hypotheses, which I'm reading as just a model? So another way of looking at the scoring 
of a large number of DCMs of the same data in terms of their variational free energies or their elbows um, is effectively uh, testing a range of hypotheses. It's just hypothesis testing. It's just a formal statement of the scientific method when cast as um, evidence-based science. Not so much Popperian falsification. This is much more Bayesian and just evidence-based. I go with the hypotheses that have the greatest evidence. Um, so in that sense, the whole the whole game now reduces to the ability to create a space of hypotheses. And that's where the real problems uh, arise. And that's where you need to be creative, insightful, lateral thinking, intuitive. Uh, because, of course, before, before you can even test a hypothesis, you have to be able to generate one and do so in the right way. So I think that's what's missing in a sense, in, in two senses. One, there will always be something missing from any DCM or any hypothesis. There will always be a better one. Um, and the, 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 the thing that's missing from the current hypothesis or DCM um, is the thing that would make it into a better one with greater evidence. That's one sense in which there's always something missing. Uh, but what, uh, the other thing that is missing is a systematic way to find the space of missing bits, to have that space of the hypotheses. This, in um, some fields, is, is, is known as um, you know, a structure learning problem, the very structure. How many, for example, if I was applying this technology to variation autoencoders, which you could in principle do, although they're not very good at handling dynamic uh, data, but you could. You could ask, <clears throat> do I need 12 layers? or 14 layers or eight layers. Each of those is a hypothesis. So you could, in principle, expose it to a vast amount of data, measure the integral of over time or over the entire data set um, of the variational free energy, which you're trying to optimize. Use that to score 14, 12, and eight layered variational autoencoders. And then you would be able to say, for these kinds of data in this situation, this is the best kind of architecture. But to do that, you've had to know that there is a space of variational autocoders that has a discrete number of layers. And now, so you now imagine, well, what about other kinds of uh, structural attributes? You know, uh, perhaps what about convolutional neural networks, the weight sharing that you get um, implicit in, uh, in a convolutional neural network? You know, that's, you know, what's the best kernel? What's the best kind of weight shape? All of these things. But of course, you know these structural attributes. Now think of a structural attribute which you've never come across before, like say a factorization and a transformer or you know, something which, you know, a hypothesis about the shape and structural form of a, for example, a deep learning neural network um, um, that you hadn't encountered before that could actually make the um, the, the the system um, and the implicit generative model um, much much better. So that 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 I think is a big outstanding problem. In Bayesian statistics, it's, it's a problem of um, Bayesian model selection uh, in the sense that before you can select the best model among a space of models or a set of hypotheses, you have to be able to articulate and create that space. Um, there are some interesting developments in non-parametric Bayes, 
um, that take a particular direction in terms of adding in slots to a Geraton model at the right time if the model's not working. But I'm not sure that they're really the answer to this fundamental problem, uh, which is how do you create a model space and a hypothesis space? The only answer that I've ever seen that's uh, in any way compelling is the answer that evolution has given us. You know, so you just try out different hypotheses, different phenotypes, you associate their adaptive fitness with their marginal likelihood, the likelihood of finding that phenotype in this eco-niche, um, and then using rejection sampling, you just increase the model evidence of the adaptive fitness. So it may well be that the only way of doing it properly is to wait a very long time and, and use evolution to, you know, to find out what is missing. That's interesting. Maybe I, I, I don't know if this question could be related, but when I look at the example as we are human, for example, the sense of time, for example, as our brain um, tries to sense environment and get this data. And one of the interesting things is I found that um, when we are younger and just grow older, we feel the time is running fast because we, we maybe when we are kids, we still experience the world. And, uh, and I think that's give us the sense of time, maybe longer but when we grow older it needs it seems that it's times fly do you think this is something i don't know if, do you think this is something could be related to what you're trying to understand about the brain and how it process the environment or the time yeah no i think it's an excellent question um uh and a very prescient and current one as well um you know people are trying to uh, you know you know, what is time? Um, and not in a, in a trivial sort of, you know, universal clock time, but, it, you know, um, um, but how do we construct time when the only reality is a constructed reality from the point of view of the brain as a, inverting some dynamic causal model or its generative model of the world? The most convincing answers I have seen um, actually speak to the way that you formulated your question in terms of what it is like to be very young um, where time, you know, a week can seem like a year, as opposed to when you're, you know, you're my age, and a year goes by like a week used to go. Um, so, I think one of the best answers is that you know, that once you've once you've um, committed to this notion of the you know the remembered present and free from the moment. Um, we're not really talking now about universal clock time anymore. We're talking about something that is constructed. Um, and people in quantum computation love this because they, they just don't like any, they like background-free computation, pure computation. So they really don't like space and time as assumptions before you start. And I think that's probably exactly right. So in the same way that we construct space, through a simple explanation for if I move over there, I will see this or I will feel this. Um, we probably also construct time. So that asks that begs the question: what is the metric of time? What, you know, what kind of measure equips the time, the constructed time, with um, a with a metric so that you have a you know a dimension of time or an arrow of time? And it looks as if it's um, a quantity called um, the information rate or the information length. Um, and put simply, oh, it's a very simple, con well, it's not simple, um, um, but it's a straightforward, unmagical construct. It's simply the number of belief configurations or probabilistic configurations 
that you pass through as you move over a statistical manifold. So if in a unit's time, you, um, uh, in a unit of universal or clock time, you change your mind very, very little, that means you haven't moved very far in terms of this metric, this information length, and you have a small information rate. But if you've changed your mind a lot and you've moved through many, many different probabilistic configurations on this statistical manifold, it will be as if there are lots of moments have passed, lots of these cognitive moments have, have changed. Uh, and then if you compare the number of cognitive moments or perceptual moments um, with the number of moments at higher or lower in your hierarchy, you can then probably get to an argument at least of relative time. So that would suggest to me that, um, that you know, when you're young, you're changing your mind a lot per unit clock time. Uh, so there are lots of things that you are learning and that you're assimilating. Um, so it seems as if relative to some reference, um, possibly higher or lower in your hierarchical construction of the world, you've experienced lots of things in a day and you've done a lot of belief updating. Um, uh, whereas when you're old and you enjoy your routine and every day seems like the last, the degree of belief updating is, uh, is, seems much, much less. And that belief updating is interesting because that's actually also mathematically the complexity that we were talking about before in terms of compression. Uh, so uh, there's some lovely connections between um, the information rate and the information length, which is simply the KL divergence um, between um, or the relative entropy of um, infinitesimal changes in the, um, the, um, the relative entropy of different beliefs as you move on a trajectory on a statistical manifold, um, which literally, if you interpret as updating Bayesian beliefs from priors to posteriors, that distance along that path or trajectory is literally the degree to which you change your mind in the sense of Bayesian belief updating. So the more updating you do, the, or the greater number per unit clock time, um, then um, the greater your information rate and, and, and probably your sense of time, your sense of time dilation, that you've packed more, or more things are happening per, per, unit, uh, per unit clock time for you as a young person, as opposed to me as, as, a, as an older person. So that boils down to literally um, a sense of time um, um, being furnished by the rate at which you change your mind in the sense of Bayesian belief updating. That's interesting. Interesting. Maybe I want to ask you uh, again in that case, um, when we speak about dynamic causal modeling and how certain parts affect each other, when we speak about failure, um, for me, I, I don't know, maybe correct me, I, I view, for example, obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, or maybe certain features like this, maybe failure in the human brain. Do you think this kind of failure in how each part affects each other when it comes to OCD or this kind of illness in uh, 
and functionality in the brain. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, there's a whole field um, that has emerged in the last um, eight to five years called computational psychiatry. And a big part of that is exactly asking the question that you just asked, um, specifically of things like OCD, but also depression, autism, schizophrenia, addictive behaviours, for example. Um, and no normally the answer you get um, is that it um, it rests upon a very particular failure in this in the kind of data assimilation or evidence accumulation um, that you're trying to do with dynamic causal modeling. Um, so there are a number of ways of understanding or explaining it, but um, from an engineer's perspective, you can look at dynamic causal modeling as doing both state estimation and parameter estimation in the form of a Bayesian filter. Um, and if we just take the very simplest example of a Bayesian filter, that would be a Kalman filter. And if we just think about how a Kalman filter works, um, then it's got its update and then it's, sorry, its prediction term. So, you know, if I knew the state of the world at the moment, I can predict how it would change in the next moment in terms of its velocity or path or direction of change. That would be my prediction. And then what the Kalman filter does, or Kalman-Busey filter uh, does, is it then provides a um, an update or a correction based upon a prediction error. So I thought the world was going to be like this in the next few hundred milliseconds, say, or the next second. And then when I get some new data in, oh, it's not quite like that. There was a prediction error. I thought it was going to be like this, but it's slightly off. And then I'm going to use that prediction error to adjust or correct my prediction, and then I get my full Kalman update. Um, crucially, though, I have to assign a particular weight to that prediction error. If the data are very, very noisy, I'm going to downweight that prediction error. So my Kalman gain will be much smaller. So I'm going to go with my, uh, my prediction more than I would have done if I've updated my prediction with a very, very precise prediction error. So getting data assimilation right, getting sense making right, rests very, very sensitively on getting the, uh, the estimates and the precision of your data right, uh, if you're an engineer, getting the Kalman gain right. Um, and so it, what that says is that it's important to do the right kind of uncertainty quantification, which in the world of computational psychiatry, or at least the kind of uh, formulations I'm familiar with, reads as being able to predict the precision of various sources of information, where the precision is inverse uncertainty. Um, so not only do you have to predict what's going to happen, you also have to predict the predictability or the precision of what's going to happen. And it seems as if much of psychiatry and possibly even neurology reflects a failure to predict the predictability or to predict the uncertainty or to predict the precision um, so that you're not able, for example, um, to um, attenuate when you need to the precision or the Kalman gain of certain sensory sources of information. And it may sound strange, but that that attenuation is really important in terms of allowing people to move. We all it's called sensory attenuation. So very quickly or very briefly, at least, um, in order 
to realize a predicted movement. I have to ignore or attenuate the evidence for the fact that I'm not currently moving. And if I can't do that, then I am going to use the evidence I'm not currently moving to believe, do my basic belief updating, and I'm going to completely undo my prior belief that I was moving. So I'll never be able to move. So in the absence of being able to attenuate the precision of, in this instance, the consequences of movement, or the sensory consequences of movement, I will render myself unable to initiate a movement. Clinically, that's a description of Parkinson's disease, um, which is associated with abnormal dopaminergic neurotransmission. The reason I introduced that is that dopamine and other drugs implicated in OCD and in addiction and in schizophrenia, they're all the drugs or the neurochemicals that um, set the game, the Kalman game, on the neuronal populations reporting, in this instance, the prediction errors. So there's a, there's a really nice um, connection now between the psychopharmacology uh, and the neuropathology of many neurological and psychiatric conditions and the mechanics of belief updating of the kind that you'd understand as an engineer using Bayesian filters or uh, uh, other techniques for uncertainty quantification. So if that's right, what that means is that, you know, things, let's take obsessional compulsive disorder as an example. Um, you know, how could you, um, how could you explain OCD um, in terms of a failure to properly estimate or predict the precision or the uncertainty afforded various um, sources of evidence or, or um, um, sensory data. Um, one, one, one explanation is that you and I, when we engage in a behaviour such as, say, hand washing, that we expect the consequences of that action to bring a resolution of all the bodily sensations that were telling us that we were um, you know, in an unnatural condition, that we were very dirty, we're in danger of um, having germs penetrate our bodies. Uh, and that makes us feel bad uh, and we sense that those gut feelings and we know that if we do the hand washing or that we do any restorative, any act that brings us back, that restores that homeostasis, put things, puts things back the way that they should be. If we do that, then we predict that all these bodily sensations will go away and we'll feel less anxious. And then that hand washing, in fact, most, in fact, we spend a lot of our time just cleaning up and keeping things in order. We really love doing that. And we spend more time doing that than we do probably eating or you know, watching television. Um, so uh, you know, the, there is a great pressure to resolve these feelings of anxiety that the world is not quite as tidy, as neat or as clean as it, as it could be. It's not in order. Imagine, though, that you were unable to register the resolution of those, um, those bodily sensations of anxiety because you were either unable to attenuate or augment or attend or ignore to these signals. It will be as if you've done your corrective behaviour, 
your and nothing happens. So what are you going to do? You're going to do it again. Nothing happens. Do it again. Nothing happens. Do it again. And and so simply by denying the uh, the ability of somebody to selectively attend to or attenuate various sources of information, you can have a profound effect on their behaviour when they're expecting something to happen and it doesn't happen. And so you can use the same example, for example, in autism. You know, what would happen if it was a failure to attenuate all your sensations? It means you can never ignore anything, which means you're constantly tied to the sensorium. Every little detail matters because you're attending, because you can't attend away. Um, so everything becomes surprising and interesting and novel and salient. And how would you cope with that? Where everything is a flood of information, everything needs attention. Well, one thing is to basically get control over your sensations to make them much more predictable. And one way that you commonly see in people with severe autism is called self-stimulation. Repetitive behaviours, say slapping oneself or rocking, just taking charge of the sensorium to make it more predictable because you can't ignore it. So, you know, I could go on. There are all sorts of really, really interesting um, and challenging examples, both in neurology and in psychiatry, that would um, be uh, examples of what might happen if your brains or your uncertainty quantification mechanisms were broken at this sort of very fundamental level. Very informative. Maybe because, of course, the end, three questions left. I want to ask you... Did you find the truth in, in this journey? Because I think you're trying to understand and try to come with hypothesis, but what is actually the truth that you're expecting? Or did you find it already, the truth to the answer of all the questions? The truth? <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, you, you, never find, you, you never find the answer or the truth uh, because the, the, the whole point of um, certainly uncertainty quantification um, and the search that uh, for the theories and the models of the hypotheses with the greatest evidence is never ending because uh, uh, um, this is exactly the missing bit that we were talking about before. I do think, though, that um, um, there are very clear answers um, to that kind of question. So, for example, there is no truth. There is just a belief, a model, a hypothesis that has more evidence than another one and that we are on a continual journey to maximise the evidence for our models. We're all self-evidencing, uh, whether it's the next generation of thoughts I have tomorrow, or whether it's the next generation of students and scientists that progress that knowledge um, at, a, at a sort of transgenerational level. It's exactly the same process. The process of aspiring um, and indeed being compelled through fundamental existential imperatives to maximise the marginal likelihood for your embodied models of how your world works. Mm -hmm. And what makes you maybe fulfilled and satisfied in life? Uh, well, it's, it, I think exactly the same things that, 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 that you find fulfilling and satisfying. So when you resolve that uncertainty, when you find a simpler explanation for something, which because the model evidence or the marginal likelihood is equal to accuracy minus complexity. When you resolve that complexity, you've had that aha moment. That's the, fu that, that's the fundamental 
uh, sense of fulfillment. Yeah. So it's just saying that we are all at heart little scientists who are aspiring for those aha moments, uh, which just is a reflection of this imperative to uh, to you know to maximise the evidence for for the way that we think our worlds work. So that's what fulfills me. Those aha moments. Thank you.